I want to start off this morning by telling you a story. It's a true story, really happened, and it's a biblical story. You will find the story in the second and third chapters of the book of Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest. He was actually the head of a family of priests that had come back from the exile. They'd been in Babylon for a long time, and he was one of the groups, he was in one of the groups that came back to the desolation that was left after the Babylonians had destroyed uh, Jerusalem about 70 years earlier. And they were trying to rebuild. Zechariah, uh, as a priest, he also begins to function as a prophet. And he's combining these two offices. And um, he is, along with Haggai, prophesying and encouraging the people to get busy and rebuild the, the, what, would be, what we would know as the second temple. So they had been in Babylon. They, there had been no priests there because the high priest had... Uh, the one that was in office when the Babylonians took over, they executed him. And the guy that would have succeeded him uh, was carried away to Babylon and died there. So they had been without a high priest for about more than 50 years. There's no temple, there's no altar, no sacrifices. And so they're, they're back now trying to rebuild amongst the rubble and to come up um, and reinstitute all of these things. And so... Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. And um, it's an interesting prophecy. He has more about the Messiah than all the rest of the minor prophets put together. He talks about his first coming, his second coming, his suffering, death, resurrection, and his millennial reign. All that's in the book of Zechariah. And so he was a, a far-seeing man. And um, a lot of his visions parallel that which you have with Daniel. So we're going to pick up this story um, at the end of, in the end of uh, chapter 2 of the book of Zechariah. And they've been talking about the sins of their fathers that had caused the destruction and now they're trying to rebuild um, out of the rubble. And God is calling people to return from Babylon. And he says that for those who come back around Jerusalem God says, I will be a wall of fire around her, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. And then later on, he makes this tremendous prophecy in verse 11 of chapter 2. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And so... Uh, this great promise of Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God and becoming part of God's people. And so it's in this context <clears throat> that we get to chapter 3. And the story is about a man by the name of Joshua. He is the one that's going to be instituted as the new high priest. Uh, he's in that family line and, and uh, he would be the, the next one. Now they haven't had one for more than 50 years. And Zechariah has this vision and he sees Joshua the, hand, the high priest and he's standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. So you remember that in the closing days of, um, of Judah but just before the Babylonians came and destroyed them 
that there was a corrupt monarchy and there was a corrupt priesthood. And if you read the prophecies of, of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it tells you about the high priest, even in the temple, um, getting together as a group, uh, facing uh, in the wrong direction, and they're offering prayers and sacrifices to idols in the temple. And so the high priest would have been involved in all of that at the time, which is part of the reason why uh, the temple was destroyed, because they had desecrated it. And so here's this representative of the priesthood, and Satan is at his right hand in front of the Lord. And the Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Talking about Joshua. So he's a burning stick. He was thrown in the fire and the fire began to burn. <clears throat> this analogy of a burning stick is used other places, but it's usually talked about um, people who are the remnant. And so Isaiah talks about if God had not left us a remnant, a burning stick, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it's a... You know, when you're using brand plucked from the burning, uh, you're putting it in, a, in some pretty serious connotations there about the kind of people that have been burned. <laughs> so Amos talks about it. Um, Jude talks about it as well. Interesting, in the um, Protestant church, John Wesley viewed himself that way. He saw himself as a person that uh, he was a man that had tried to live a very holy life, but he didn't know God. He even went as a missionary to Georgia. Georgians need missionaries. And he had gone from England to, to uh, Georgia uh, as a missionary, and he didn't even know the Lord. And so he was uh, concerned about this, and when he did come to know the Lord, accepted Christ as his Savior, and knew that his sins had been forgiven, this is how he re referred to himself. And uh, interestingly enough, when he was a young child, um, his, they were living in a, a house and his room as a young boy was on the second floor and the house caught fire and nobody could get in to save him. Everybody was out of the house except him and um, they looked up and here this young boy was at the window and the, fire, the house is <laughs> going up in flames and so the neighbors made a human ladder and they reached up and grabbed him. And so when he talks about himself as being a brand plucked from the burning, um, it had a history with him. And he said that's how he felt. And God is saying, this is, this is Joshua here. He's been in the fire of God's judgment and we're pulling him out and going to reinstate him. And so he says, uh, Joshua was standing before the angel and he was clothed with filthy garments. So he's got all these dirty rags. And, um, you know, that's letting us know what's going on here. In Isaiah chapter 64 uh, what are our garments? What are the rags? What are the clothing that we wear? In Isaiah 64, Isaiah is crying out to God and he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. And he goes on and he comes down and uh, he says it in the middle of verse 5, Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? 
We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. I think that's where Joshua was. And so even the good deeds that he had done in God's sight is like a polluted garment. Uh, in Jude, Jude talks about uh, bringing people out of sin into a saving knowledge of Christ. And he talks about uh, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 4, He's talking to the church at Sardis, the Lord is, and he says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And so several places it talks about um, soiled their garments and all of that. And in Revelation 19.8, it talks about the bride of Christ being given uh, white wedding garments. And the white wedding garments are made of, of fine white linen. And it says the white linen stands for the righteous deeds of the church. So there's a difference between the deeds done out of gratitude and faithfulness to God and the deeds done in terms to try to earn something from God or manipulate or control God. Those are filthy. And the thing about all of our good deeds is if it's done from the wrong motive uh, and for the wrong reason, it becomes something ugly, polluted, soiled. And here Joshua is, the high priest, and he's standing with these filthy garments. And so the Lord speaks. And he says, the angel said to those standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, the righteousness that comes through right relationship with God. Only then do the things that we do really count for much because then it's done out of a pure heart. It's done in obedience and faithfulness. Um, you know, before sin entered the picture, Adam and Eve uh, didn't have clothes. And I thought about that and, I, and it talks, Isaiah talks about God who clothes himself with light as with a garment. And when we picture the holiness of God, at least I do, I picture a light that's radiating out from God, a purity, it's a holiness. Um, when Jesus was transfigured, his skin began to radiate light. Uh, Moses also, when he came down from the mountain, his skin was radiating a reflected light from the glory of God. And I wonder if Adam and Eve were clothed with the righteous light of their holiness, the glory of God that they were in all the time. And that was their clothing, that was their garments. And when sin entered into the picture, then they become Ichabod. The glory is gone, and we are left on our own, uh, vulnerable. And so, here's Joshua. So they've taken away those filthy garments, and now they're clothing him with garments that are holy and, and pure. And Zechariah is watching this, and, he's, and I said, Zechariah says, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments 
and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And this is an important thing. Zechariah, he's seeing this vision that's taking place. It's a contemporary thing. It's people that he knows that are involved. And he's not just a passive observer. None of these prophets were. God was not showing the, these things just for information's sake. He was showing them these things so that they would have a part to participate. Uh, Zechariah's down here. They're in the council of the Lord. The angels are there. Satan's there. God's there. They're talking with this guy. And Zechariah speaks up and he says, you need to, you need to do this. And they did it. Our prayers have an impact and they're meaningful and they have value. And when they're done in the right way, in the right spirit, according to the will of God, then things happen in the heavenlies as well as in here. And so that's what God intended all along for us to participate with him in what he is doing. And Zechariah speaks out and he, he says, let him put this clean turban on him. And they did. And so he's participating in what is going on here. And the angel assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Wow. He's in the heavenly courts, in the council of God. And God says, if you are faithful and walk with me, I will give you the right of access to this council. That right is yours because Jesus Christ is our way of access into the presence of God. This is why we can come to him as individuals because Jesus died and paid the price for our cleansing. And Revelation talks about us washing our garments in the blood of the, of the Lamb, making our garments white, purifying our actions, our deeds, our lifestyles. And when we do that, we have access to the heavenlies and we can talk with God and he can talk with us. And so what Zechariah is seeing is not just for, for Joshua. The New Testament takes it and he says, when Jesus died on the cross, that veil in the temple was torn apart and the way of access was open and the way of access is through the body of Christ. My body which is broken for you so that you can have access into the presence of a holy God. And we do. That's what he's done for us. Part of what he's done for us. And so this is a tremendous thing which God has done. This right of access. And then he continues. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now, the branch has been talked about by both Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's a messianic symbol. It's a symbol of the coming one. In Isaiah chapter 11, passage that we're familiar with, there shall come from a shoot, shall some come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. 
He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And it goes on in talking about the peaceable kingdom where the wolf lies down with the lamb because of this branch that's here. In Jeremiah chapter 23, he also has a lengthy passage talking about who he is. And I'll read just a part of it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And um, he's talking about how God is going to bring restoration. Zechariah is living in a day in which they are trying to restore. They're living in restoration days. And he's seeing this vision for their day in which God is beginning to restore a lot of different things. And then he continues. And in verse 9 of Zechariah 3. On the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, seven facets, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. It's talking about the crucifixion of Christ. Later on in chapter 6 of Zechariah, there is a... Um, God tells him to to uh, get a group of men who have recently come from Babylon and they have a lot of uh, precious things with them. And he is to make a crown and they are to go to Joshua and put this crown on his head. And what he's talking about is there's coming a day that this branch is going to be both priest and king. And we know that that's what Jesus is, isn't he? And so this is what Joshua is seeing. And we can make this application to us because this is what Christ has done for us. He's called us to be the priesthood of all believers. And he's called us to be his representatives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is when he's talking about reconciliation. And part of the reconciliation says, If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Christ as the branch is fulfilling these prophecies of Zechariah. And the way of access is open. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. Because Jesus already died and paid for that. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, His representatives. God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so He's inviting us into the same ministry that God invited Joshua to participate in and Zechariah to be co-laborers with God. He said, for the sake of for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, that's in Christ, we, you and I, might become the righteousness of God. 
Working together with him then, Paul says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So Paul steps right into the position of Zechariah, working along with God because we've received this ministry of reconciliation and that applies to all of us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, do not receive the grace of God in vain for nothing. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15, he's writing to the church and he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. It's there. He goes on to talk about bitter roots springing up, again, in the context of the church. And so he's saying, uh, the bitterness doesn't have to stay. The grace of God is there to deal with that through the cross of Christ. It's not automatic. You have to reach out and receive it. You have to ask him to come in and take it away and fill in place of the bitterness his peace, his joy. Uh, and, you know, it's there for the taking, but you can walk away and leave it. And so he's encouraging us to encourage one another. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. It's there, it's available, it's free, it's been bought and paid for by Christ. Why would we not receive it? Because we want to hang on to our grudges. We want to hang on to our bitterness. We want to hang on to our hurt, our suffering, you know. Because we can, we can have a whole identity. Oh, how they're suffering. Or oh, how they're sorrowful. Or oh, how they're bitter. Or oh, how they're hurt. Yeah, that becomes who we are. And it's not, is it? It's a lie. That's the lie that Satan wants to give. The truth is, you and I, created in the image and likeness of God. And we were meant to bear His glory. That's what, he, that's what He created us for. Paul was able to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Be careful that we do not receive the grace of God in vain. Paul says, it hasn't been in vain in my life. Because I worked hard. And he goes on to say, it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me that was doing this. And these are the righteous acts of the saints, which becomes the glory of God revealed in us. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he continues on and he's been talking about, uh, interesting enough, our bodies being the temple of the Lord. So we've got Zechariah, they're trying to rebuild the temple and cleanse it. They're trying to cleanse the priest and a fresh anointing, a fresh relationship with God, a fresh infilling, a fresh righteousness that's by faith in God. And Paul says, your body and mine is a temple for God. And you're the priest. And so he says in chapter 7, verse 1, he's talking about the, the blessings and the promises of God. And um, in the temple of the living God, in chapter 6, he makes this statement. 
Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And that was part of the problem is that people had compromised in their relationships. And when you compromise in your relationships, it compromises your relationship with God. And people want to compromise or live a compromised lifestyle and still have friendship with God and it's impossible. Um, friendship with the world is enmity, division with God. So we can be the friend of the world or we can be the friend of God. And both have consequences. Don't be unequally yoked. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? This was why the kingdom of Judah was destroyed. Because they walked into the dark. They made compromises. What accord has Christ with Belial? That's the devil. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So he's talking about keeping our relationship with the Lord in the right place. He's not talking about, not saying you can't have friends who are unbelievers. That's where the witness takes place. But what he's saying is, you're not going to make an alliance with them. You're not going to agree to participate in the things that you know are wrong that they do. Because you're not compromising the light with the dark. And then he says, since we have these promises of the presence of God in our life, the presence of a holy God... Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit because sin begins in the spirit. And that's where the infidelity takes place as far as not being faithful to God. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see, holiness, like salvation, is not a once-off experience. And it's done. It's a thing that we are born into by the blood of Christ. But then we grow and develop. And, you know, God in His mercy, even when we accept Christ as our Savior and ask Him to forgive us of our sins, He doesn't show us how sinful we really are. We couldn't take it. We wouldn't believe it if, if He told us. Well, I'm not that bad. Well, yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Uh, we had a, a lady that was a really fine lady. Uh, she was in a little country church up north on a Sunday morning. And uh, man, God had spoken to her. He really had. And she hit the altar and she was praying and weeping. And, and uh, some of the, the older women were around her trying to pray with her. And uh, help her to, to come to accept the Lord. And she was saying, oh, I'm so sinful. Oh, I'm so sinful. And she was a fine, upstanding lady in the community. And they were patting her on the back saying, no, no, you're not so sinful. You're not so sinful. <laughs> I looked at her and I called her by name and I said, 
you don't even know the half of it. <laughs> said, you're worse than you think you are. <laughs> you're worse than anybody knows. You're worse than you yourself can even conceive. And that's why you need Jesus. And that's why he's dealing with your heart right now. But as we go, as we walk with the Lord, he begins to show us more as we're able. Habits, ways of thinking, ways of responding, um, moods, emotions that we allow to dominate our actions instead of us taking control of these things. And so there is a growing in our walk with the Lord and there is an ongoing cleansing that we all need. You know, um, if you go out and work hard, you take a shower or a bath, then you're clean for a little while. But the problem is you get dirty again. Well, you know, I took a, I took a bath last month. I, I don't know why I need a, another bath. And yet in our spiritual life, that's the way we live. Well, I, I, I took a bath 30 years ago. Well, yeah, we all know. That's why nobody gets within 50 feet of you, you know? Now, there used to be, in the Middle Ages, they had this warped idea about cleanliness. They were afraid of it because they were afraid it made you sick. And so there were, some, <laughs> there were some, quote, unquote, holy people. There was a nun that had boasted that she hadn't had any water on her body except for her fingertips so she could clean her fingers to eat for over 50 years. She must have been a hermit. <laughs> Nobody else around. That's not what the scripture talks about. It talks about a continuous cleansing and a, a growth and a progress in our relationship with God. Because we have these promises, then God encourages us to completion bringing holiness to fulfillment, to completion in the fear of God. And God tells us, this is a commandment from God, repeated many times in the Old Testament, particularly the book of Leviticus, but also in the New Testament in 1 Peter. Be holy, God says, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that command is based on the reason or the way that God created you and I. Created in God's image, and God is a holy God. And because God's a holy God and we're created in God's image, then God expects us to be holy like He is. Because He's given us of His life, He's given us of His Spirit. And it's His presence in us that makes us holy. All of our efforts to work and make ourselves holy, as Isaiah told us, filthy rags. We stand before God like Joshua did. Garments that are stinky and polluted and corrupt and God offers us through the blood of Christ um, this cleansing so that we can be holy so almost a hundred times in the New Testament it talks about Christ in you and Paul says Christ in us is our hope of glory Christ is our righteousness Jesus is our sanctification, our holiness. And so when Christ is in our heart, we become holy because of his presence. Hebrews again tells us, strive for peace with everyone. Work at it. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
And Hosea, another one of the minor prophets, cries out to his people, let us press on to know the Lord. Let us know him. Let us press on to know him. And so Peter tells us, this is the goal. In 2 Peter chapter 1, and this is a tremendous promise that God has given to us. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace be multiplied. So that's superabundance. His divine power has granted to us, you and me, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, the very ones that Paul was talking about. So having those promises, cleanse ourselves from defilement of body and spirit, go on to bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. So these precious and great promises, so that through them, through those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. That's what you were created for. To be partakers of divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, here's how you make the holiness complete. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness or faithfulness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, if you lack these qualities, you're nearsighted and blind and have forgotten that you've been cleansed from your former sins. Have we forgotten? Have we forgotten? We've been cleansed for those former sins and we don't have to go back there anymore. We don't have to remain enslaved to what we've been set free from. And so there's this progression here. And this is the growth in knowledge and growth in completing holiness. It's a day-by-day walk. And Paul has told us earlier that if we're keeping our eyes fixed upon the Lord, then we begin to reflect His image. People begin to see Christ in us. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. When we accept Christ as our Savior, we're born again, and the fruit of righteousness is planted in our heart. And the Holy Spirit comes and He brings that to fulfillment and it begins to grow and produce fruit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. These are the things that are being produced, fruit, in our life, in our actions, in our attitudes, in our thinking, in our motivation. And that's what is progressing us in our walk to become more and more in the image of Christ. And Paul says that as we look to Him on a daily basis, day by day, we're becoming more like Him with ever-increasing 
glory, the light of the presence of Christ should be shining through us and implementing more and more and more ascending ways. And if that's true as an individual, it has an impact on everyone around you. It can impact your home. What if husband and wife both were doing this? What kind of a house would you have? What kind of impact would it have on the kids? Uh, and maybe the kids would be the ones that are, this is taking place within them. What kind of an impact would it have on the parents? If the kids began to live this kind of life, especially those who claim to have Christ in their hearts. So if we claim to be Christians and walking with him, are we still wearing the filthy garments of the past? Things that have been corrupted and polluted by our sin. Are we still going back to the old habits, the old bondage, the old slavery? Well, just remember Zechariah. Joshua is standing there in the council of the Lord, but he's not by himself, is he? Satan's right here. He's there to accuse you. And the Lord says, take off those garments. I'll give you some better ones. Bought for, paid for, cleansed by the blood of Christ. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. You don't have to rebuke him. God will do it for you. And you'll be free. If you're free, as Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you are genuinely, truly, completely free. That's a dangerous thing. Because if you're really free, that means you're free to do, to make a choice. And you can go back to the old ways. That's what freedom means. If you want to go back, go back. And you'll be twice more the child of hell than you ever were to begin with. And the Hebrews and Peter both tell you it would be better off for you not to have known than to have known and experienced and then gone back. So we've been set free. How are we using our freedom? Are we pressing on? Have we received the grace of God in vain in an empty way? Or are we bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God in our life? That's the message that Zechariah, Joshua, and Paul have for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that your grace has reached down into our brokenness, our fallenness, our filth and degradation. And you did not shun from getting down in that with us in order to pick us up. And Paul reminds us he has made him to be sin who had no sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Father, I pray for us as individuals, it will not be for nothing that Christ has died. And I pray, Lord, that you would work within us as Christians. Help us to throw away the garments of the past and to put on the new garments created by you, washed through the blood of Christ. 
that we might go forth as new people not living in the old lifestyles with the old habits and catering and worshiping the old sins. So Lord, we ask that you would rebuke Satan on our, at our side and that you would cleanse us and help us to hear once again the invitation. If you walk with me, you have access into this council bought by the blood of Christ that we can come before the Lord with our needs and our prayers, our thanksgivings and our joys and we can rejoice in life abundant. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.